You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. John 13, beginning with verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Heavenly Father, we pray, O oh Father, that you'd be pleased to bless us this morning. With this prayer, Father, we, we do desire to recognize our utter dependence upon you for your instruction, for your teaching. That you would open our minds, Father, to the great truths that you have recorded here for us and deposited for us. These are your thoughts, and how vast is the sum of them. Oh, Father, we pray that, Lord, you would teach us, lead us, and guide us in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, in verse 31, Jesus says, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And, and this produces a number of questions. I mean, for, for instance... Uh, what, is, what does Jesus mean by saying, uh, now is the Son of Man glorified? And what exactly is it for Jesus to be glorified? And how is God being glorified in Jesus' glorification? And, and in the end of verse 32, Jesus says, glorify, he, he says, glorify him at once. How is it uh, going to happen at once uh, on this night and what are the practical implications of the answers of all these questions? There are five, if I counted correctly. Um, and that's what I want to take up this morning, is really to ask these questions of this text to see just what does Jesus mean here, with, especially with verses 31 and 32. We're going to touch on some of the other verses, but primarily uh, this morning we're going to be looking at verses 31 and uh, 32. Now, it would be helpful for us to review last week, as I've been saying it's hard for us to remember, probably even by Wednesday, uh, what the points of the sermon uh, were. And uh, I, I certainly don't take any offense to that because sometimes I don't remember them myself. Um, and, you know, once upon a time, Spurgeon was asked, I'm going to loosely paraphrase his answer. Uh, they, 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 I don't know if it was so much a, uh, a question that was asked of him as much as it was a statement that was made. Why do we need to suffer through preaching when by Tuesday we can't remember a thing that was said? And Spurgeon said something like this, well, what did you have for breakfast last Tuesday? And, you know, there's the answer. Well, we might not be able to remember what we had for breakfast last Tuesday, but we did benefit from it, didn't we? 
Uh, and that's really a lot of the ways that you know, we're being fed spiritually through God's word, and it's important. Even though we might not be able to remember what we fed on, uh, we did benefit from that feeding. And last week, the, the subject, and I think once I mention it, you're going to go, oh, yeah, that's what it, that's what it was. I, I talked about a powerful apologetic. Do you remember that now that I bring it up? Or a powerful defense. Jesus gives us this powerful defense of the truth. You know, he, he, in, all through chapter 13, he's talking about betrayal. And let's suppose that Jesus never spoke about the betrayal. Let's suppose that he just kept it to himself. And then Jesus is betrayed uh, by one in the inner circle, which leads to his uh, eventual crucifixion. Uh, What would the disciples conclude or what could they possibly conclude from that? They may come to the conclusion, how could Jesus not have known? If he truly was, if he truly is God in the flesh, if he truly was uh, the Messiah, how could he not have known that he had um, a, a betrayer in the mix, in the, you know, in, the, in the camp, if you will? So you can see what Jesus is doing is he's, he's, he's not only preparing them for a dark hour, but he is preparing them for the fact that they've been traveling around uh, with someone and they, 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 you know, he's been completely incognito. They don't realize it. They don't know it. And he's preparing them because not only is Jesus being betrayed here, but in a sense, the disciples themselves are being betrayed as well, are they not? And he is so lovingly um, preparing them. If you look at uh, verse 19, he says there, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. We spent a lot of time looking at that. And we went back to Isaiah 43, which I There's a couple of passages in Isaiah that Jesus may have had in mind. I have a particular uh, conviction that it's Isaiah 43 that he has in mind. That's why I chose that passage for us to go back to last week. Um, But at any rate, uh, what is going on now? You know, Jesus in verse 31 says, Now is the Son of Man glorified. And how does Jesus come to this conclusion uh, that it's happening now? And we could answer the question by saying, well, it's happening now because Jesus has just pushed the button. And what do I mean by the fact that Jesus has just pushed the button? Jesus has just pushed the button on a series of events that are going to lead to his execution. Let's imagine the dominoes, if you will. We have, I don't know, maybe 10 or 12 dominoes just set up on a, on a tabletop. You push the one, what happens? It falls to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next, till they all come down. Now, how is it that Jesus has pushed the button? Well, in verse uh, 27, Jesus has said to Judas Iscariot, what you're going to do, do quickly. Um, I think, as one author puts it, you know, it's, it's like when you look at verse 21, you see Jesus, he's troubled in his spirit, you know. You look up to verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray you. And then when you look at Jesus' demeanor from verses 31 through 38, he seems, there seems to be a calmness upon him, almost a peace upon him. And I think this really helps us get into the evening. It helps us get into the, to, to get around the table with the disciples and really see what's going on and to really see the humanity of Jesus. It's like he's troubled and he's agitated in spirit. And then finally he says to Judas, go do what you got to do and do it quickly. He pushes the first domino down. He pushes the button, if you will. Now he can just say, okay, this this thing is in motion. Uh, 
because he has pushed the button on God's providential machinery that is, that is and God has got all of these things lined up. What is Judas going to do? He's going to run off to the chief priests. What are they going to do? They're going to dispatch the, the mob. What are they going to do? They're going to seize Jesus and arrest him. Take him to uh, Caiaphas and Annas and then to Herod and then, or to Pilate rather, then to Herod, then back to Pilate and it's going to lead to his crucifixion. This thing is in motion. It's in motion. And as we think about, well, what is this? What does it mean that, okay, this glorification, what is, what is Jesus talking about? Well, John has been preparing us for this. You know, it, last week I made a comment about the Bible reading programs. You know, many of us follow those. And please don't misunderstand me. If you're faithfully following one of those, keep doing it. I'm only, I don't, I'm only saying there is one pitfall uh, to the Bible reading program, especially if you're on a program that kind of goes like this. Okay, you read maybe one passage of Genesis. Uh, you read a chapter of Genesis this morning. Then you read a chapter of Matthew this morning. Then you read a Psalm. And then tomorrow you read the next chapter of Genesis. And the next chapter. The problem with that is it's hard to see the, it makes it a little tougher to see the argument that's being put forth in each book. I really don't think that we're meant really to read the Bible that way. However, there is a great benefit in doing it. And I don't want to talk anybody out of it. But what I do want to say is there's a great benefit in sitting down with a book and just reading a book straight through, because then you begin to see um, the arguments that are put forth. Let's just do this together. I'll show you. If you go to John chapter 1, we make a lot of noise out of verse 14. 1, 14. I'm, I'm quoting all the time, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we're not wrong to do this, but oftentimes we stop right there with the word us. But if we look what goes on afterwards, afterwards, John says, we have seen his glory. See here, we got this word glory. We have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So, you, you know, okay, you're, you're mentally, okay, you're catching this word glory. Now, when you turn, turn to John chapter two, verse 11 there you read, this is the first of his signs. Jesus did it, Canaan, Galilee, and manifested what? His glory. How does he do that? Well, he transforms the water into wine. And we, you know, it's been a, a months and months ago since we looked at that passage, but we looked at that passage for its uh, significance, and it's marvelous. There Jesus is showing his glory, if you will. And then if you turn to John chapter 7, verse 39... For sake of context, uh, we look at verse 37. Uh, Jesus is at the uh, uh, Feast of Booths, if you will. And in terms of timetable, it's about six months earlier than the event that's happening in the upper room, which we're studying right now. So the, the upper room's happening in the spring, roughly. Uh, this is happening in the fall, uh, uh, just a few, six months earlier. On the last day of this feast, verse 37, the great day... Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Look at verse 39. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet what? Was not yet glorified. Now, if you keep on turning... To really the, 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 really the pinnacle of all Jesus' miracles, John chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And if you look at verse 1 and following, there a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, 
the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for what? It's for the glory of God. Right? It's for the glory of God. So that the son of God may be what? Glorified through it. You see, John's given us, you know, I liken this to dolphins. You know, when you're at the beach and you see the dolphins jumping up out of the you know, there's always, a, if you see one, you can be rest assured there's a school of them, but you maybe see one or two at a time. And these themes in John's gospel, they really, they do kind of jump out, then they submerge. They're always there, uh, but then they surface. And in John chapter 12, uh, verse 23, we looked at this verse uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, our focus was a little different at that time. But um, here, this is taking place earlier in the week. Uh, you see Jesus' triumphal entry, John's record of it in verses 12 through 19. In verse 20, uh, some Greeks show up, uh, non-Jewish people. They show up, and they're asking to see Jesus. They, in verse 21, they come to Philip, and Philip, of course, goes to Andrew, and Andrew and Philip both, verse 22, go and tell Jesus. Now, look at Jesus' response in verse 23. He answered them, and he says, the hour has come. For the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, when you compare this verse with 13 and verse 1, chapter 13 and verse 1, it puts it all together. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, his hour had come to what? Depart out of this world. So we see, and in, in, in the last time we were in John 12, 23, we were focusing on the hour, weren't we? We did a similar survey of John's gospel looking at the hour passages. They, they, they sought to arrest him. They sought to destroy him, but his hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. And then you get to verse 23, and the hour has come. The hour has come for what? For him to depart out of this world. Or we could say the hour has come for him to be glorified. Now, what John is doing in in chapter 13 is something that the Old Testament reader um, is, is uh, probably, uh, if, 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 you're, if all you had was an Old Testament, you don't have a New Testament, and your focus is always on the Old Testament, I think we'd be a little more t- in tune to what John is doing in chapter 13. But what John is doing is he's taking two strands of messianic expectation. It's kind of a mouthful um, What do I mean by messianic expectation? He's taking two strands of who the Messiah is expected to be, who the Savior is expected to be. He's taking these two strands that seem to be in opposition to one another, and he's converging them. He's putting them together. How do we know this? If you go back to John 13, verse 31 again, and I know I got a lot of pieces laying out on the floor. I promise we're going to put them together here in a minute. We got to get them out of the box, right? John 13, verse 31, Jesus says, now, and notice the title. He says, now is the Son of Man glorified. And it's easy for us sometimes to lose uh, track of this title because Jesus is it's his favorite self-designation. It's the title he's always using for himself. And a lot of times, it's easy for us just to read that and not really read anything into that. But in this, especially in this verse, it's carrying a lot of freight. What exactly does Jesus mean by calling himself the Son of Man? Someone might think, well, it's just a 
He's just referring to his humanity, kind of like Psalm 8 does, you know. Uh, What is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you should care for him? Simply referring to human uh, nature in itself. But some of you are smiling because you know that what Jesus is making reference to is out of Daniel chapter 7, isn't it? If you turn there with me, Daniel 7. Daniel chapter 7, we've looked at this. It's been maybe a little bit, but we've looked at this many times. In Daniel chapter 7, I'll back up to verse 9 for context's sake. Now there, Daniel is is, uh, recording a, a vision that he has had from God. He says, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were open. And I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. And as for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Look at verse 13. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like what? Son of man. One like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And here you see this, this, this glorious. I mean, it's, it's, like, it's like Daniel is reaching for it. You know, any word he can come, the Holy Spirit is leading him to reach for any word, any, any, any illustration. You can see that this is so glorious. It's, it's, it's so majestic that the human language can hardly communicate what is happening. But you see the Son of Man is coming to the Ancient of Days and he's being crowned with absolute authority. You know, a few years back, uh, we spent a whole Saturday morning in here lo- looking at the Ascension, didn't we? It was a lot of fun. We spent three hours in here talking about the Ascension. And this is one of the passages we looked at. That after Jesus is resurrected, then he ascends. And as he ascends and he goes to the Father, what happens? He's crowned. He's crowned with, with unlimited authority. And in, you don't need to turn to John 13 just yet, but think back. Uh, one of the things we've been making a lot of noise about in John 13 is Jesus saying that he knew that the Father had put all things into his hands, didn't he? Of course, this vision is in his mind. The Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days and being crowned with, uh, with all of this glory and magnificence and being given a people where Jesus would not just be a king of the Jews. But if you look at verse 14, Daniel 7, verse 14, he is going to be given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And this shines a lot of light on chapter John chapter 12, verse 23. The Greeks show up, and they're looking for Jesus. And when Jesus hears they're looking for him, you can almost see him smiling, where he says, now is the time. Now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, what do you suppose is going on in his mind? Here come the peoples. Jesus had said in John 6 that no one can come to him unless the Father enables him, right? Jesus knows the hearts of all people. 
He, can, he, he knows the hearts of these Greeks, if you will, and here they are truly coming and seeking Jesus. Now, what does that indicate to Jesus? The hours come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's one strand that we clearly see in John's gospel, a strand of expectation. But there's another strand that we need to put together here. And if you turn to Isaiah 52, and this is another passage that's familiar to many of us. Isaiah 52, it's one of what we call the servant songs. And when you look at verse 13, Isaiah 52, verse 13, there he says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. You can, you can almost see the, you see the continuity with this great verse and with Daniel 7, 13 and 14, don't you? The son of man coming to the ancient of days. And here is the servant. He shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Okay, so far, so good. Verse 14, as many were astonished at you. But then we get... To the next part, it says his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. What is that all about? Verse 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him for that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? Chapter 53, verse 1. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows. We have a song that we sing. It's right after that verse, don't we? Man of sorrows. Acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. You have the Son of Man approaching the Ancient of Days in this glorious passage, and then you have this other, this other, this other strand, if you will, of messianic expectation. Look at verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our, our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. We're thinking about the Revelation 5 that we read, you know, one like a lamb who was slain. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away and for his generation. Who considered that he was cut off? This idea of being cut off is a brings up to mind the idea of circumcision. You know, circumcision points to the cross where Jesus is actually cut off, if you will. He is cut off, and there circumcision and baptism meet. When Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, he's referring to the same event on the cross. He is cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief, and his soul will make an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. 
Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. One of these days, we'll look at that verse by verse and and really digest it, really work on digesting that. But for now, you get the picture, don't you? You see two opposite strands of expectation uh, for this coming one, if you will. And when we take both of these and we put them together and we go back to John 13, what what is going on here? Jesus is saying, now is the Son of Man glorified. What is he saying? What is he saying? Now it is time for departure. Now it is time for me to depart. And he is saying that this departure is going to be uh, equal. John is putting this departure or this crucifixion, if you will, in equality with his crucifixion. And we may ask the question, how, how, how comes it? You know that theological question that we get from Calvin? How comes it? How, in other words, how can Jesus be glorified by all of the events? Jesus has just pushed the button. He's just pushed the button on betrayal. The betrayal is taking place. Judas is running off to the chief priest. They're going to come and seize him. They're going to accuse him of blasphemy, which is amazing because he's the only human being who has never committed blasphemy. And he's going to be charged for blasphemy. He's going to be taken off to, uh, uh, to, to Pilate. He's going to be judged by a pagan. He's going to be made sport of by the Roman soldiers. They're going to strip him naked. They're going to flog him. They're going to put a crown of thorns on his head. And they're going to send him out publicly, humiliated, carrying a cross. And then they're going to crucify him. And then he's going to die. How can he be glorified in this event? What John wants us to see is that Jesus is glorified precisely because of this event. And we ask ourselves, how comes it? Well, because it's at this event that Jesus is victorious over sin, Satan, and death. I was thinking about this yesterday, you know. Um, I I spend a fair amount of time walking in the park. It's where I like to pray. And I was um, just... Thinking this through, how do, you, how do you preach this stuff? How do you preach this stuff? And it dawned on me. It dawned on me. It's like if we wanted to assemble an army, you know, we're hearing in the news all the time, you know, Putin and the Ukraine thing. If we wanted to, send, if we wanted to assemble an army, and here's what we're going to do with the army, we're going to go after sin. We're going to assemble an army that is going to conquer sin. Would that be successful? We're going to assemble an army that's going to go after evil. Now, we can put together a police. Uh, we, we, you know, we have been able to accomplish that. I mean, if you have laws and you have just laws and, and you have these laws enforced in the land, you, you can curb lawlessness and you can bring peace. But you never get rid of sin, do you? There's always somebody breaking the law. It's like those in law enforcement. It's just like they they crack one case and they move on to the next and on to the next and on to the next. And sometimes the officers will say, when is this going to be over? How you, how, what, what kind of army are you going to amass to try to go after sin, to go after evil or to go after Satan? What army is, what army is, 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 is Satan's equal? The answer is there is none. What king could do it? The answer is there is one. And this is what Jesus does on the cross. Is he goes after sin. He goes after evil. 
and he goes after Satan. And he is victorious. He is victorious. That's one thing that Jesus does on the cross. The other thing is he washes his servants. You know, if you look in John 13 to verse 10, Jesus says, all of you are clean, except for one. All of you are clean. How can he say that? Because he's going to wash them. How's he going to wash them? He's going to wash them on the cross as he takes their sin upon himself, right? Now, what's interesting is that Jesus doesn't really start talking about this glorification and all this until he has purged the group. They weren't a complete, they, they, they had evil in their midst up until Jesus pushed the button, didn't they? But when Jesus pushed the button, off goes Judas. And now Jesus is speaking to a pure group of people. All 11 of them are, are, are in Christ, aren't they? It's important that we know that for the context as we travel through the rest of this chapter. Jesus is speaking to his children and only to his children at this point. He calls them little children in verse 33, doesn't he? A, a, a title of tenderness. He is speaking very tenderly to them. Very tenderly to them. And he has washed them. He is opening a way. We'll see that in chapter 14 when we continue. And he's also providing righteousness for his servants. We're not even beginning. I feel so, I feel like this is, so, what can you say to try to bring out something this magnificent? It's, 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 I find that the human language just doesn't even, uh, it's not even up for the job. But let's move on to another question. How is God glorified in Jesus? It's the answer is simple. God is glorified in Jesus' obedience. You know, the greater the sovereign, the greater the allegiance is due to that sovereign. Does that make sense? The greater the sovereign, the greater the allegiance is due to that sovereign. And what does Jesus do? I've, I've written it out so that I didn't trust my memory with this one. I want to get it right. The Father is glorified by Jesus' obedience in the respect that Jesus' obedience, even to a cross, shows how great the Father is. Jesus is completely absorbed in the Father and his beauty and his loveliness and his wonderfulness, if you will. He's completely absorbed in him and there's nothing he is not willing to do. Nothing that he's not willing to do. And this brings me to an objection that sometimes you'll hear. As many of you know, last summer I spent a lot of time laboring down at Mountaineer Park and one of the assignments I had was to go down there and try to start a Bible study. Not an easy task, I'll mind you. Um, it's not an easy task to start a Bible study anywhere and to keep it going. Um, but uh, we, we, you know, by God's grace, we had a Bible study that met for most weeks. And um, one of the Bible studies was almost completely broke up uh, by a heckler. And, and I don't mean any disrespect to this man. I, I got to know him and I like him. Um, and I'm, I hope he comes back this year. I'd like to see him again and continue where we left off. But he showed up for the Bible study. He, he very much was heckler. He was a heckler. And I was demonstrating the cross. I was, I, was in, I was up to my neck in talking about the crucifixion, talking about how the crucifixion uh, didn't happen by accident, but it was, it was decreed by the Lord. It was according to the scriptures. It was the Father's will. And as soon as I said that, my friend said, that's child abuse. Has anybody ever heard that objection? It's child abuse. 
Now, when I tell these stories and how I react to these things, I don't want to give you the impression. Preachers can so easily make themselves the hero of all their stories. Listen, um, it, it, that's not what it's like. I want to say this to you as an encouragement. When you're out there trying to share these things, I get beat up too, by the way. And I don't always have the words to share. I mean, a lot of times for me, after I've thought about it for uh, oh, you know, a couple of days, and I think, well, I could have said this, I could have said this. The fact is you didn't because you didn't think of it. I mean, he, this guy was, I, I could tell there wasn't probably going to be anything I was going to be able to say to convince him that the father is not committing child abuse. So really my attention turned to the group. I mean, he, he really made such a fuss that he ended up getting up and leaving. And here I'm left with the group after they, you try to pick these pieces up. <laughs> Welcome to ministry. Um, but let's think about that. Is the father committing child abuse? In my friend's mind and in the minds of many who, uh, who, who make this charge, they reason this way. Okay, the father is a father, right? And I am a father. This man had a son. So God's a father, I'm a father. God has a son, I have a son. The father put the son on the cross. If I put my son on the cross, that would be child abuse. Therefore, the father has committed child abuse. Does that sound about right? That's pretty much the objection, right? Now, what do we say to that? First thing we say to that is, listen, this is not apples to apples here. Think about the hubris that has to go in my, our minds to think that, okay, the father is a father and I'm a father and we're on an equal playing field here. I, <laughs> I love the facial expression Stephanie is making. Nobody looked back at Stephanie, but if I could put that in words, it would be perfect right now. You think of the great chasm between the father and us. The father... As a father, I'm a father. There's a world of difference. The father has prerogatives and liberties that we do not have. Someone will say, well, whoa, can you give me an example? Sure. We have a birthday. Did anybody plan that birthday? I, I didn't plan to be born in 1967 right across the river in Liverpool. <laughs> it wasn't my plan. And that's, that speaks for everyone in this room, doesn't it? We also have a death day. We have a death day. Now, is God wrong in giving us a birthday? Is he wrong in giving us a death day? If we would decide to try to give one another a death day, then we have committed one of the greatest crimes that we can commit, which is called murder, isn't it? We do not have that liberty. We do not have that prerogative. God has that prerogative. God has that liberty. And in fact, one of the arguments that's often leveled against euthanasia is you're playing God. And what is that a statement of? It's a statement, you don't have that liberty. You do not have that prerogative. But it's also an affirmation that God does. You see, we have to recognize that this, this is not apples to apples. It's, it's not even close to having apples to apples. The third thing we need to understand is we cannot in our best day begin to love God the way God loves. We cannot begin to love our sons and our daughters the way God loves. We're incapable of loving. God's love is incomprehensible. 
It's, it's not apples to apples. You see, in this assumption, there's God, is, God becomes this child abuser. He becomes a God who can't love uh, with that objection. The fact is, God loves greater than, than any of us could even possibly imagine. And, a lot of, and, and I'll leave you with this last one. A lot of times we don't focus on what the Father suffers while Jesus is on the cross. We think about Jesus' anguish on the cross. We think about Jesus' suffering on the cross. But we don't think about the suffering of the Father. The anguish, if you will. We don't think about that. There's some who would even deny that God could even have that emotion. Would that be easy to do? All of this is pointing. You know, the Father is glorified by the obedience of Christ, obedience that even goes to the death, if you will, to the death on the cross. Now, let's move for some practical application of all this. What's this got? I think we can already see a lot of it. Um, Jesus lives and dies for the glory of the Father, doesn't he? There's a spiritual truth in verse 32 that we that will empower you to want to, if you, if, you, if you need empowerment and you want empowerment to live the way Jesus lived, there's a great empowerment there in verse 32. Jesus says, if God is glorified in him, notice it's a conditional statement. If God is glorified in him, okay. If God is glorified in him, God also will glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. What is the spiritual truth there? The spiritual truth is, if you live to serve God, he will glorify you. Someone say, really? Well, look back to chapter 12 and verse 26. What's Jesus say there? He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the father will what? You'll honor him. You'll be honored. You'll be honored. Now, if you continue back to John 13, verse 33, Jesus says, little children, little while I'm with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. What is Jesus saying? He's making application of what, of verses 31 and 32. And he's saying a new commandment I give to you. And someone might read that and say, well, it doesn't sound like a new command. It sounds like a command we've had all along. Well, Jesus said, listen, the law and the prophets can be summarized by this, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself, right? So what is new about what Jesus is saying in verse 34? I th there's a lot of answers given to that question. I think that what's new about it is the reference point that's given in it. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. How? Just as I have loved you. How has Jesus loved us? See, it's the love that, I've said this many times. It, it's not fear of what the neighbors are going to say that causes a mother to run into a burning building to get her child. It's the love that does it. Isn't it? You look at this amazing love. Jesus is calling us to love. The first thing we have to think about here is, well, how has Jesus loved us? Oh, he's loved us so much that he would undergo this humility, undergo this anguish, undergo this pain, and hang naked on a cross for each one of us. He didn't do that just for the preacher. 
He did that for everyone who is in Christ. And what is the application of it? And in doing this, Jesus is glorified. And in doing this, the Father is glorified in him. And God will glorify Jesus. And has Jesus been glorified? Oh, I think I see in Daniel's vision, one like a son of man coming to the Ancient of Days. And there he is, crowned with all authority, heaven and earth. The one who suffered. You see how this is all being put together? The one who has suffered by this new commandment that I give to you. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You know, we could say Jesus has given us another apologetic, couldn't we? What do I mean by apologetic? A defense of the truth. How are people going to know that we're Christ's disciples? By the love we have for one another. The ancient church father, Tertullian, wrote about this. In fact, in that time... One of the great and powerful defenses of Christianity to the watching world was the love that Christians had for one another. In fact, Tertullian writes, I have a quote here. He says, see how they love one another. This is what the watching world is saying in regards to the believing community. See how they love one another. See how they're ready even to die for one another. It's one of the things we need to always be praying about is that we grow in this love. Over Christmas, um, I heard from one person who had visited us during the Christmas holiday. And the comment that, that this person made was, I can see how everybody has grown really close and how everybody seems to really care for one another. That's precisely it, isn't it? We want to constantly grow in this love. Constantly. But notice what... No, Peter, you know, it's almost like one commentator says, it's almost like Peter doesn't hear what Jesus is saying. Why doesn't he hear what Jesus is saying? Because Peter loves Jesus. And all Peter, and I think this is where we'd be. I think this is where we'd all be right now. Jesus is talking about leaving. And he's, he's going, and where he's going, we can't follow him. And Peter's been following him everywhere for the last three years. And he's leaving, and he can't follow him. And Peter's stuck on that. And he says in verse 36, Lord, where are you going Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you're you're going to follow me afterward. Peter said, Lord, why can't I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus says, will you now? Before the rooster crows, you will have denied me three times. How many times have we denied the, the Lord? Jesus says we're to love one another just as Christ has loved us. It, again, we can go back to, to Isaiah 53, can't we? All we like sheep have gone astray, haven't we? But he has put, he has put the iniquities, the iniquities of us all has been put on him. See how this, as you bask in, he says, Lord, in all my sins, you know, all my, yeah, in all your sins. And how this should, the community that Jesus creates, which was the title of one of the sermons that we, that we extracted from John 13, wasn't it? The community that Jesus creates. The community that Jesus creates should be a community that loves each other and bears with one another's burdens, isn't it? Right? Does that make sense? No? No? We've probably gone far enough then, Right? We made it. That's verse 38. So let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you, O Lord, 
for these wonderful words that you've given us, oh, Father. Oh, Lord, we pray that, Lord, you'd be pleased to encourage us by these words, that, Father, you would lead us. And Lord, as we look at these words, oh, Father, what, what could possibly hold us back from, from turning, turning to you, oh, Father? And, oh, Father, we, we pray that, Father, you would apply these words to our hearts and you would cause us to grow in these words, oh, Lord. And we pray, oh, Father, that, Lord, you'd press these things, Father. Work in, work in this community, oh, Father, that, Lord, we would, we would love each other, Father. That we see that the, the love that you have for us would be reflected by our love, not only for you, but also our love for one another. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.